This is Impact, a look at the things that matter in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. The vaccines have arrived. The vaccines have arrived. The vaccines have arrived. I could sing that all day long. Of course, it will be many months till I get one, but I don't care. Our healthcare professionals will hopefully be protected as they go about their days saving the world from a deadly virus. Nevada is under an extended soft lockdown with cases still on the rise and hospitals filling up fast. We're going to talk to UMC Hospital CEO today. But with the expected COVID mitigation comes something much more disturbing, the virus of misinformation. Journalists and public officials, as well as doctors and police officers, have been threatened by people who simply don't think the virus exists. I had a thoughtful conversation with the editor-in-chief of the Idaho Statesman this week on this very topic. But first... Yeah, we're going to run the numbers. We are at 310,000 deaths nationwide at this point, over 17 million cases. In Nevada, Governor Sisolak made very clear in his press conference this week that he would do a hard close if federal money were coming to states and individuals. We're a bit over 6,700 cases per 100,000 people in Nevada, which is less than the Dakotas right now, but on par with Illinois, which has almost 13 million people as opposed to 3 million here. 2,673 people have died in Nevada of COVID-19 since March. We've had almost 200,000 cases that have been reported. This doesn't count people who have a fever and are told to stick it out in their homes, but are never actually tested. The first vaccines have arrived. We're going to talk to UMC CEO Mason Van Howling in a few minutes. But right now, we're going to start with Sarah O'Connell, who joins me every once in a while to talk about uh, the goings on of COVID and the world. Sarah, welcome. Hi, good to be here. So um, this virus is really squirmy. It, looking at the map is it's kind of like looking at like one of those snaky things that squirm all over the place. Uh, uh-huh. the, the red gets redder in some parts of the country one week and then other parts of the country a different week. Uh, it is it is kind of backing off the Midwest, it looks like, and it's hitting the Northeast again. Boston is getting a dose. Uh, yeah. And Texas. And uh, it's coming back in some areas that we thought were gone. Well, the reality is that when we don't have a national strategy, this is what happens. You're just going to keep having the right hand infect the left hand until everyone's vaccinated. And hopefully that will be soon. Uh, how do you feel? Are you going to get vaccinated? Oh, yes, most oh. definitely. Okay. Uh, you know, I there's uh, a lot of misinformation out there in the media. But, you know, if you use your common sense and everything you learned about vaccines when you had your own kids, at least in my experience, you know, I had no problem getting my own kids vaccinated for measles and mumps and rubella and chicken pox. And so I certainly want them to have the vaccine for this. Yeah, me too. Uh, I don't know uh, if this goes under um, anything for money or crazy as a loon, but a team of people in Houston, I don't know if you heard about this, surveilled an air conditioning repairman for a few days and then determined that he was hoarding ballots or he had created fake ballots that were all in his truck. 
Uh, and uh, when this was before the election, this was in October. And when the police wouldn't come to arrest the guy, one of the team members actually rammed his truck. And then when the AC repairman got out and said, hey, what's going on, man? Uh, the guy put him on the ground, put his knee on his back and held a gun to his head until the cops got there and then arrested That's the guy right. that rammed him. I remember him. this. Then uh, some of the team members took the van, took the took the refrigerator repair truck, or not <laughs> the AC repair truck, and drove it away. So they stole the truck, and it was found abandoned somewhere. And uh, the only thing that was in this truck were AC repair parts, no ballots, no anything. I, I don't know what is what is what is worse: the fact that these guys actually did their homework and watched this guy. And still came up with the wrong answer that they're that stupid, uh, or the fact that they were doing it to begin with. Well, I I guess part of it's you know seeing what you want to see. <laughs> I guess right, and or you know that 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 cartoon they show where someone's standing on a on one edge is a six and the other character is staring at it. It's a nine, mm-hmm. and they're arguing over if it's a six or a nine. Right. You know, I, I think you might have a situation where that's going on and what a disaster. And it's tragic because that's an extreme example of stuff that's going on in kind ways big and small all around the country. We're yes. just throwing common sense out the window. Yes, we are throwing common sense out the window. But I don't know how you how you think that uh, air conditioning repair tools are paper. Like that's that's the part that I really I'm like. How do they think that he was hoarding a bunch of paper ballots? But, okay, fine. The interesting thing is that they were paid handsomely for this. Uh, the guy that got arrested that, that held the gun uh, made $266,000 uh, from the Liberty Center for God and Country, a Houston-based <laughs> organization funded by uh, Republican mega donors. And that, that started a conversation in my house about what we would do for $266,000. Well, I think that anything that would cause me to do something extreme mm-hmm. would have to be about a matter of life and death for someone I cared about, like my children. It wouldn't be for cash. Yes. So it seems like odd to to go all in like that for something as small as a money, you know? So let's, first of all, but ultimately I think you have a, the thing about conspiracy theories uh, is that, you know, it's about not being able to play the tape all the way forward. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm a theater director and, you know, we understand meaning by looking at the end of the play and working our way backwards, which means that the first, the, the first uh, part of a story or a conspiracy, you know, might make sense as you go. But if, if you, if you try to interpret the action backwards, you get lost. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have just a lot of people who aren't thinking beyond the end of their nose. Yeah. Uh, because if you play the tape forward, like with this refrigerator repair guy, like, okay, so where are the ballots and now what? Right. Like, what, what's he going to do with them now? Like, yes. Well, he was, he was trying to prove van, that there was voter fraud. Yeah. Right. Like it's late. It's almost January. Right. You know? right. Like, well, this did happen in October and they were trying to prove it before right. the before the election. But yeah, it just, it does defy common sense. We're going to talk about this a little later too. Um, I, the, the news today that I found interesting, we're taping this on Thursday. It's going to run on Saturday. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden picked, wait for it, a Native American woman 
to be the interior secretary. Um, I think this is big, also combined with the fact that he, he uh, chose a black man to be head of the EPA. Uh, so this is telling me that he's looking at things from the perspective of those affected by bad environmental decisions over the corporations who are making these decisions. Joe Biden said he wanted to heal the soul of the nation, mm -hmm. and you cannot make amends without accountability as the first step. It works with human beings, and human beings are a society, and that's how our society is going to have to heal. You have to accept the, the mistakes that were made so that you can actually invent a new future together. That's how you both take place part of the healing process. That's the positive way forward. And when you take, uh, you know, the Department of Interior was designed to, you know, participate in mm -hmm. the genocide of the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And so by, by empowering uh, someone from that, you know, who has survived that abuse as a representative of, of a nation that has, that's empowering the one who was wronged. And mm -hmm. they're going to help set the terms for the amends. Mm -hmm. And that's how you're going to finally close the wound. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing when you talk about Superfund sites mm -hmm. and African-American communities and the way that we have poisoned the soil all around and then taken away the healthy food and taken away all the other things that are part of a healthy environment. It's, it's, it's empowering those who were wronged so that they could be the ones helping to decide the terms of the resolution. And this is why... Um, I see what I see is leadership. Yeah. Again, at long last. I, I remember it's, it's relief. I remember uh, Biden said this in one of the debates with Trump. He referenced uh, African-American communities that are near Superfund sites that are near mm -hmm. toxic, toxic dumps. Yes. And uh, Trump's response was, well, they get paid well. That's <laughs> right, all that which counts. Which is also not true. <laughs> right, which is also <laughs> Right, which is also not true, but but that like like that's all that counts. Well, they get paid. Well, for the record, Trump would take the two hundred and sixty thousand dollars <laughs> to go knock over the HVAC guy in a heartbeat. <laughs> in a heartbeat, yes. <laughs> or he wouldn't do it. He would send John Jr. to go make sure they found someone else to do it for him. Maybe he'd tell them that the HVAC was really like a rare, like you know. Uh, elephant or something and Don Jr. could go hunt it down. Yeah, but, true. He wouldn't do it. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the arts. We are all watching everything on our computers these days, even what is supposed to be live theater. Uh, specifically, Warner Brothers uh, decided to stream its entire 2021 season uh, of films. They're on, on HBO Max. They are betting that People are not going to be going back into regular theaters this next year. I, I'm I don't think it's not about just this next year. I mean, this is about acknowledging a paradigm shift that is um, we're only just now beginning to reckon with in mm -hmm. terms of um, culture and the digital, uh, you know, revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not just you know, it's it's a it's not just about the format which you consume the creation. It's also about all the the whole system of industry around it, right? That funds it and and provides that content mm -hmm. and uh, the distribution of the culture is, that's actually where the money is. <laughs> and so you're seeing a lot of wars now between unions and screenwriters yes. and, and all, and, and it's gonna be a melee as if the arts haven't gone through enough. It's gonna be a labor 
producer melee for, yeah. <laughs> for the next five years, I think. Um, but we really, I don't, I think this is another one of those issues where COVID is just forcing people to face something they've ignored yeah. for 20 years now, right? Which is having a screen union and a stage union and different writers guilds and directors unions. And we're all fighting over a shrinking pie. Mm -hmm. We're not collaborating enough to bake more pies. Mm -hmm. So I wish we would have a summit actually about this issue and actually realign all of our planets. That's my hope. Okay. Um, uh, having dealt with uh, all those unions that you have talked about, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I cannot imagine that a, a summit. I, I was really e even shocked a few years ago when SAG and AFTRA came together and merged because that yeah. was a conversation that had been happening for 20 years before it right. actually happened. Uh, so, mm. so yeah, but, but yes, it is. Uh, I'm worried that people are not going to come to see live theater. On the other hand, I also think, you know, it's it's now even more special to go sit in an audience with lots of other people and see people live on stage. It's oh, going, yeah. No, it, I don't think there's there's no threat to uh, the, the uh, live theater's existence in, the, in that it can exist in, as long as you have two people in a space. What What doesn't exist right now is a system that's functional in terms of keeping theater professionals um, in the theater industry because they can't afford to feed themselves. Ah. And uh, it's, or having, you know, people are worried there isn't gonna be enough money to fund another Hamilton with a beautiful set and all those beautiful singers. Yeah. Uh, it's not because of digital distribution, it's because of a failed funding system for the creation of live theater. So um, I think uh, only the people who have a lot at the very top have any, anything to lose right now and everyone else has already been so low at the bottom that you know this covid crisis just showed how many people were already not getting by yeah and so um it's another form of the economic revolution you're seeing and the pressures in greater society you're seeing it in the theater world i think but uh, uh, as long as someone can afford to well as long as someone's willing to put money into a beautiful piece of theater it will sell out uh, with that, I'm going to leave you for this week, Sarah O'Connell. Thank you for uh, talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy holidays. Yay, you too. This is Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Hey, kids, we're ready to roll. Stopping that virus, that's our goal. So come on, everybody. We're getting the shot. It might hurt a little bit. Just a little bit. But it's going to help a whole lot. This vaccination is a great opportunity Yes it is, yes it is To do something for yourself and your community Yes it is, yes it is The virus won't spread if we don't let it So roll up your sleeves and come and get it That was a number from Sid the Science Kid in a video to make kids feel better about getting the flu shot but it makes so much sense right now. University Medical Center was the first in the state to roll out the new COVID-19 vaccine this week. There are currently 
over 2,000 people in hospital beds in the state, and ICUs are filled to capacity. More to the point, healthcare personnel are at their breaking point. Mason Van Howling has been on the front lines of this virus since the beginning. Uh, he is the CEO of University Medical Center, and this puts him squarely in the middle of policy issues and the health and safety of his staff. Mason, welcome to the program. Thanks, Carrie. It's always good to be with you and uh, your listeners. So I saw the pictures of healthcare personnel getting the vaccine. Uh, how many vaccines do you have? How many personnel do you have that need it? Uh, and how many were you able to give uh, this week? Uh, UMC was able to receive the first Pfizer COVID uh, vaccine. We uh, were uh, very blessed to be able to give the first vaccination to a very hardworking ICU nurse that has been a long-term employee at UMC that has been treating really hundreds and hundreds of COVID uh, patients over a 10-month period. So uh, lots of tears in our eyes of joy Yay. Uh, for not only her, but the, the couple hundred employees that we were able to vaccinate. And we'll continue to do that uh, over the next couple of uh, days and weeks. We received uh, around uh, 1,850 doses. Um, that will definitely get our frontline healthcare workers that are directly taking care of patients at the bedside around the clock. Uh, and then uh, we've got about 4,000 employees and about a, another 500 medical staff um, that will be able to, to vaccinate over the next couple of days and weeks. And again, every uh, healthcare worker in the state will have an opportunity to get this vaccination um, at, very shortly. So we're very excited and um I'm just happy that the solution is finally here. <laughs> so am I. Uh, you're going to be able to vaccinate uh, everybody uh, who is a healthcare worker within the next few weeks. You're going to get that much vaccine. Yeah, we we definitely feel that the supply chain is strong. Great support from the federal government, the state, and our local uh, lawmakers and, and legislators. So we are very confident we'll be able to. Anyone that wants the vaccination uh, will be able to uh, receive it. Uh, you know, getting the vaccine is one thing, but in order to fight this COVID-19 virus, uh, we have to make sure that the community gets vaccinated. So right. we'll be advocating and educating on that, but uh, no side effects uh, whatsoever. Yesterday from um, the 200 plus employees at UMC that were fortunate to receive the first uh, batch that came in and uh, we'll continue to monitor that, but uh, very confident we'll be able to, uh, get everyone uh, moving through tier one and, and looking forward to pushing on to tier two and tier three uh, so the rest of the public can have it. Uh, and um, the tier three isn't going to really come till probably late spring, early summer next year. Like I'm not going to be able to get vaccinated uh, for a few months now. Yeah, that's the anticipated timeline, Carrie. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going to press hard to get through tier one healthcare workers where we've been anxiously awaiting, preparing mm -hmm. for weeks and weeks to, to deploy this out. And it's going very smoothly. Um, lots of eagerness from the staff to be able to uh, receive the vaccine. And, and there were some that were on the fence, but they're seeing their coworkers, um, the excitement, they're doing it. So it's building a lot of trust uh, on this particular vaccine. Again, we had the Pfizer, Moderna, should be out any day. So again, I'm very confident that the supply will be available and plentiful. And uh, but you're right. Uh, timelines are estimating around uh, March timeframe, but mm -hmm. we're going to push hard to 
give every reason to try to beat that date. Yay. So you talked about the first people that uh, took this vaccine uh, were ICU nurses who have been on the front lines of this. And, and, and when you said taking care of hundreds of COVID-19 patients, I sort of winced. Like, I cannot imagine what it's like to be there day in and day out taking care of one COVID-19 patient after another. This disease is so crazy and so different. How are they doing emotionally? Your staff. Yeah, as I... As I mentioned, you know, we have been working day and night, uh, nonstop, seven days a week for really over 10 months now. And the team has been amazing. Uh, We have evolved as far as this virus and our treatments and therapeutics. But I know every healthcare worker is extremely grateful for that early pause back in March uh, that gave us time to prepare. And we use it wisely. Uh, we were able to uh, ramp up our plans, ramp up our surge, ramp up our ventilators, all the PPE, and we're really a good place right now. And really receiving this vaccine was just another boost in the morale of the team. So uh, they're doing good, but uh, we're tired, but uh, the team does amazing things every single day mm. and extremely proud of the UMC team, team members and all of our healthcare workers. And I just want to say thank you to all the the businesses out there, I'm seeing a lot of appreciations on the radio and on, on the television and throughout uh, the community. So we appreciate that. And, and your message is definitely heard. So have you lost any staff to COVID-19? Unfortunately, we have. Uh, we have lost a few members uh, that had underlying uh, conditions. Uh, unfortunately, we lost uh, one of our nurses uh, last week, unfortunately. Uh, out of one, one of our quick cares and uh, one of our long-term nurses, such a, a bright day uh, when you walk in and, and saw her and um, just an amazing person. But unfortunately, um, you know, this virus is, is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, healthcare workers are not immune either. Um, and we're on the front lines and uh, it's just been very difficult for all of us. And, and I think every, every hospital has lost someone uh, in this battle related to this virus. So, my hearts and prayers go out to those family members that have lost their loved ones that have been working so diligently to take care of others during this time. So I want to know what you're planning to do once this is over. Like, I feel like healthcare workers have been in a war and fighting this virus as if it were a war incoming all the time. Uh, they're bound to have some PTSD afterwards. Are you thinking that far ahead? We are. We have um, really been thinking about about that all along. And through all of this, we've had a lot of lessons learned, but we've always been trying to be sensitive to to really the mental um, pressures that are on our healthcare workers, our doctors, our nurses, our EVS staff, our dietary staff, everybody that's part of the the care team. So we've been checking in uh, with them frequently. We message often. We're visible, rounding, uh, making sure that we're uh, patent folks on the back and, and just reminding them of the amazing job that they're doing. And, uh, you know, but we are thinking long-term. I think there will definitely 
be some serious lookbacks, uh, both in healthcare workers, but also our community on the impacts of uh, the virus has had uh, on all of us, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of um, employee assistance programs. We have a lot of behavioral health specialists that have really stepped up to help our communities. And we do roundtables. We talk through things and um, just allow people to vent and, um, you know, lean on each other's shoulders and uh, take a break. So, uh, again, we appreciate all the community support with all the donations and the gifts and the food. And it's just been um, just a really uh, great support and, and uh, kind of reflects back, as you know, UMC was instrumental in the response to October 1st, yeah. but just the community support has come out. And it just reminds me of those days of, of you know, seeing the worst come out of, of what's happened in our community, but the best come out of our people in our community. It, it just amazes me every day. Yeah, I'm very proud of this town. Um, at this point, there are no more elective procedures at UMC. Am I correct uh, about that? You're, you put a moratorium on that? Well, we, we really take that carry uh, day by day. You know, we, we are um, anything that um, potentially could tie up a bed for a, a, a very acute COVID patient or somebody that perhaps had a stroke or a heart attack that needs open heart or major um, neurosurgery. We're making very sure that we have have a delicate balance of making sure we have bed availability for our EMS, our first responders, to be able to uh, take patients to their closest hospital. So, uh, yes, last week we actually did cancel our electives or our procedures that could be possible possibly delayed for a week or longer. And the community's really been supportive of that. They truly understand. This week we are, uh, we've reopened, oh, okay. but there are other hospitals that are out there that have put a pause on those uh, for a week or uh, perhaps half a week. And so we're, we're really being flexible and nimble on surgeries that could possibly be delayed. We don't certainly want to create any more complex issues or have an adverse event. event. So we look at uh, and work with the patients and the doctors very closely to see if we can buy, uh, you know, five days, 10 days to make sure that we're able to um, accommodate. Since we have such a high positivity rate, it is translating into more hospital admissions, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Is your hospital and unfortunately, full? deaths. Um, we're, you know, we're at 88% currently right now. Um, a little over uh, 30%, around 32% of the patients that we have currently are uh, COVID. Hmm. Uh, the great thing about UMC is we test every patient that comes through our door. So if you're out jogging and you, you twist your ankle or in an auto accident, we're, we're, we're giving you a COVID test as you come in. So believe it or not, Carrie, we, we identify about a third of our patients that are here uh, that are COVID. We're not here for COVID uh initially. Mm. Um, it was for other reasons. So it's really given us advantage for our nursing staff and our doctors to be able to make sure that we're protecting the patient, but also others around them, but also our staff. So that's given us a clear advantage to be able to identify those patients because there are a lot of patients out there that are COVID positive that um, are just not aware of it. They're asymptomatic. And that's what we're really worried about that you and I look at you and I are friends. We would never see each other as a threat or our own mm-hmm. family, but Unfortunately, um, that's where we let our guard down, and we just need to make sure uh, we're, we're doing all the things that uh, we, we advise, even with our own family members. So UMC ramped up testing. It has actually been the go-to testing place for me and a lot of people I know. Have you, what did it take for you to ramp it up and ramp it up so quickly? It was a huge logistical feat. Um, it took all hands on deck. It took all of our experts, all of our supply chain 
um, you know, all of our facilities, IT. And uh, I remember those days of just listening in the call uh, at the team, just pulling this together. And, and what I believe is the best lab in the entire country. Uh, hands down, there are still other states that are waiting three, five days on results. And you literally can go on to umcsn.com make an appointment and uh, get in, get out and get your results. Pretty much uh, you go in the morning, you'll have them by the evening. Yeah. <laughs> or the, or at least the next day, which per- was perfectly fine with me. Uh, I, you, yes. we, we have talked before about uh, Medicaid, the Medicaid uh, uh, enhancement and, uh, and that being a boon for hospitals. Right now, we're not getting any any federal government support. Governor Sisolak said that a few times in his latest press conference. Uh, how are is the hospital doing financially? Did you get a cut over the summer? Did you get any CARES Act money? Uh, how are you holding up? We're concerned about a couple of things. And the first of all, the unemployment rate. You know, I think economically... Um, is a big concern. If we go back and look at March, where the unemployment rates were, um, you know, we were upwards to uh, in the in the 28 percent. Um, you know, April, May, 25 percent, and then once we kind of reopen that that uh, tapered back down. But even today, when we look at unemployment, it still is uh, higher than we were at the Great Recession. So. What that does is certainly changes the um, the way that people are insured. Um, people look to the exchanges, Silver State Exchange, which I know you're familiar with, uh, the Medicaid programs that the state runs. And we've seen, uh, I think the number was about a 19% in, uh, increase in enrollment on the Medicaid programs over this year. We were doing really well. We were down to around 9% uninsured. But I think we're going to probably get back into the 20s uh, of uninsured. The problem is, is, is how do you balance uh, more enrollees on a program that's already strained and stressed uh, mm-hmm. and looking for ways to continue to deliver uh, the care? So I think that's going to be the tough job that the state has. But we're, we're working together as a hospital association and trying to help support, making sure that we're able to help balance that budget with them and uh, make sure that we have folks that uh, are covered and access to care. That was always the intent with the expansion of the ACA and, mm-hmm. and, and Governor Sandoval expanding and Governor Sisolak continued to support the expansion uh, here in the state of Nevada. But uh, the, do- the job's definitely going to be tough, but we're, we're there to help support them. Uh, the CARES money, um, you know, uh, just from our standpoint, as you recall back in um, March and April, where we asked people to uh, first stay at home, but also only to seek out care unless it was an, um, a true emergency. And um, so we can allow to build up our infrastructure and build up our uh, supplies and PPE. Well, that did have a negative impact on hospitals because about 40% of our volume uh, did not materialize mm-hmm. nor, as it normally would compared to last year. So, you know, UMC did see a loss in revenue. Um, Coupled with our expenses, uh, as you mentioned, uh, standing up labs and, and just, you know, seeing PPE, something that was typically three cents go to three dollars per item, uh, the capital investment. So when I look at lost revenue and expenses, you know, the impact to UMC was around one hundred eighty four million um, of the CARES Act that we've received. We've received around forty three million. And then the county's care funding, we've seen around 16. So we're still about a shortfall of 125 million. Mm. So uh, 
but but we're uh, we're working hard to rebuild and uh, much like any other business whether you're a restaurant um, auto shop, uh, large resort. Um, we're we're in the same boat as everybody else. True. So two questions come out of that. One is that that there were items that were marked up. There were like items that were three cents that now were three dollars. Is that being investigated in some way? Are you saying that that there were there were medical supply companies that were gouging people? Well, I mean, if you really look at our PPE supplies and just the price variance of pre-COVID and then uh, uh, during COVID and, and, and still today. And, and as you know, Carrie, a lot of this was made in China, in the province where the yeah. virus initiated. And so I think what we've all learned is to, you know, we, we need to have more than one or two uh, supply chain vendors. Uh, we have definitely diversified that. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, for, for an example, a purchase of 500,000 isolation gowns that we would use on a normal year at UMC, you know, the, the pre COVID price. Um, and again, this pre COVID to buy those gowns was about $245,000 during COVID. Um, that now is about 9,325,000. Oh so God. yeah, I mean, uh, it's just amazing. And, and, and every business experience now they're coming down, but there still are uh, shortages. You know, when I look at, what an N95 mask uh, typically ran pre-COVID was 59 cent or 51 cents. I apologize. During COVID, three dollars and forty wow. uh, three dollars and ninety eight cents. So a difference of three hundred uh, three dollars and forty seven cents, six hundred and eighty percent markup. So, and I can go. The list can go on and yeah. on. So that's really our our challenge is supply cost, um, and that's that's not unique to UMC. It's it's across the board at every hospital that's experiencing high supply costs and. You know, and that's why this vaccine is so important. It'll help us uh, get folks uh, vaccinated and and uh, build an immunity. And then uh, we can see less hospitalizations related to this. Interesting. That that brings up the idea for uh, exploring, uh, you know, how capitalism and healthcare kind of intersect uh, in, in, in this situation. Not a really great way, but I'm not going to go there right now. Uh, I do want to <laughs> ask you. Uh, in terms of the legislature, the, the session is starting in February. You are uh, behind. You are $100 million in the hole. Um, what are you going to be at talking to the legislators about? Well, obviously, um, our big concern is, is balancing the state's budget, and in, in, in mainly because we have so many Nevadans that have, are now have been on Medicaid, but will continue to grow the enrollment. And I think the big concern from the hospitals here in the state is the current rate of Medicaid uh, reimbursement. So that will be kind of top of mind to be able to make sure that we're able to provide care to those enrollees, provide access, but Mm -hmm. also, um, as you know, uh, a lot of the innovation comes out of uh, treating patients, um, services and and even we've learned so much from COVID um, that I think it's going to accelerate things. So I think um, you know the, the the cuts that the state is looking and it has done has certainly had an impact on hospitals. But we're going to work very closely. We understand the situation they're in and we want to be good partners to be able to help uh, balance that budget, but also make sure that. Uh, hospitals are able to provide the care, not only in large urban cities like Las Vegas, but um, our rural hospitals as well.
I just want to end with this. I, I read this a couple of months ago. You personally save somebody's life? Wow. Yeah, Carrie. Uh, great. Uh, I'm glad you caught that. Um, yeah, my new friend Pablo, who was visiting from Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, my wife and I happened to be on a date night in the middle of the week. Uh, we wanted to get out. Uh, things had opened up uh, and uh, just happened to be in the right place at the right time and was able to um, deliver CPR for a gentleman that was in full cardiac arrest um, and was able to do CPR and bring him back. So if I could do a plug for everybody to learn how to do CPR, you, you may never think you're going to use it. I had never used it before in my lifetime, but I, at that moment in my mind, I said, this man needs my help and I know what to do. So thanks for bringing that up. And Pablo nope. is a friend forever. That's I'm sure he is. What did your doctors think? They were amazed. They, they actually heard, uh, they, they told me that the percentage of chance of survival and, and Pablo did great. In fact, he, no, no brain damage. No, he did have to have a heart procedure. Um, but we were able to catch that and, uh, he, he had it done at UMC. So I got to see, uh, um, his entire treatment uh, from start to beginning and it was able to push him out to his car and send him back to the Phoenix to be with his family. But they were, uh, I got a lot of street cred now. Let's just say that, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> Mason Van Howling is the CEO of University Medical Center. Mason, uh, thank you for being with us this week. I appreciate it. Thanks, Carrie. This is Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Idaho is a beautiful, complex state that doesn't often find itself in the spotlight. But in early December, a video of a Central District Board of Health meeting made its way through the interwebs because it had to be adjourned. Protesters were outside the Health Commission building, and as you just heard, protesters were also outside of Commissioner Diana Lociando's house, pounding on the door and terrifying her 12-year-old son. We tried to get Commissioner Lociando on the show this week, but she's not talking to any press, and frankly, I don't blame her. The first person I thought of, though, when I saw this video is Idaho Statesman editor Christina Lords, whom I follow on Twitter and with whom I've had conversations about threats received by journalists. Christina joins us today. Welcome to the program. I'm happy to be here. How is Commissioner uh, Lociando and how is her family and how is her son? Well, we know that she provided us a statement on um, her social media account saying that everybody is okay. And, um, you know, I think it's just more on a, a personal level of being scared. Um, I know that they've had protesters show up at their house now multiple times. Whoa. It wasn't just that one night during the health health district meeting. And so it's been a several instances of this happening. And, and I think she um, I think she's really weighing, trying to provide a service to her community and serving her community in this public capacity and being worried about what that means for her children. And um, I think we've seen that it's a it's a very legitimate concern at this point. This has happened to officials throughout the country, and we, we're seeing more and more um, instances where people are stepping down from their positions because they just feel like they're not safe enough to be able to continue to do this. I was just reading a story about a mayor in Kansas um, that stepped down because she felt like that her personal safety was being threatened. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a mother, so I I don't know what that feels like to, to feel real concern like that for a child. Um, but you could hear it in her voice mm -hmm. when she, 
you know, I watched that meeting in real time. And um, as it was happening, it was just one of those things that you, you were just horrified because you felt for this person, no matter what your politics are, I think we all want to be able to provide a safe haven for our children. And generally that means your own home. Usually that's not questioned. That's a safe place for a lot of people. And for her that night, it wasn't. And you could see that and you could hear it in her voice. Uh, We also had here in Nevada, we had uh, somebody who had taken over as the interim of uh, unemployment, uh, the, uh, the agency that runs unemployment. And she left after a few weeks because she was getting so many threats from people who couldn't get their unemployment. She was just there to try and figure out what, what was going on. And people were threatening her life. It's, it's genuinely scary to me that, um, as I've grown up that, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a history buff and, and studied history as well as journalism in college. And it's scary to me that we've reached a point where we can't talk to one another without fear or wondering what it will mean um, to get the reaction out of the person on the other side. And that if we do express how we feel um, that people are starting to experience it, these um, instances where they genuinely feel unsafe. Mm. And it worries me, especially as we're just turning the corner on more and more women uh, being able to run for politics and have an impact there. It worries me that um, they may feel an extra sense of pressure to to not put themselves into that situation because of their children. I'm not saying that men don't feel that same way too, but we, we tend to see this happen with people that run for political office that are women. It's just, um, it's interesting to me, and I would hate for that to be a reason why someone didn't step up to the plate and feel like they could give back to their community and, and be a part of the, the, the process because of that. That's yeah. what I genuinely worry about is that people will will be less willing to, to put their name into the hat and, and to try to make the world a better place. Do you think that that's a cause and effect a little bit that because more women are uh, in the public eye as public servants, as uh, journalists, as newspaper editors, uh, that that's partly why their people are getting so upset? I think it would depend on the situation for sure. But in general, I think women are scrutinized in ways that men are not when they run for political office. And we, we even kind of saw an example of this with um, Jill Biden and the Wall Street Journal um, column where her credentials were questioned and the writer asked that she not be, that she not refer to herself as a doctor when she's a 69 year old woman with like four degrees, four Mm -hmm. academic degrees, including masters and and higher levels of degrees. You know, it's it's interesting to me that that's the thing that they tend to attack um, instead of the position themselves. And I think that when when we're showing up at people's homes, we're not showing up to have a conversation at that point. I think we're showing up to intimidate those people based on their recommendations and their votes and their their policy. And so when we're doing that, it, I just don't think the motivation there is to open a conversation and try to find common ground at that point when you're using an air horn and, bl- and blaring it into someone's private home mm. and in their neighborhood. You know, I just don't know what that accomplishes. To me, it makes sense to... to to follow the the tenets of the First Amendment and be able to show up and, and gather and protest and and be able to say, you know, I agree with this or I don't in a public space. We've had that tradition in the United States for since the very beginning of time. Um, but we're seeing more and more of these personal attacks 
And I, I think it's a chilling effect um, for the people who run. Um, we've also had a lot of our school board members step down during the pandemic. There's been several, at least three people on the West Ada School Board, which is the largest school district in Idaho, um, either stepped down completely or the chairman also recused himself from the chairmanship. He stayed on the board. Um, but they all talked about how this time has been particularly ugly and threatening and scary for them on a personal level. And so you know, at some point you have to ask yourself, why, why, why would you sign up to right. do this or to, to be a public official and try to make these decisions that you think are best for the community, um, but that you're getting this kind of pushback? It would be terrifying to me to to have that happen to my kids or mm -hmm. um, to see people show up at my home. And it's actually something that I've worried about. I've worried about with some of our stronger editorials and calling out some of this behavior that people would show up either at our opinion editor's house or at my house. I have a plan if that happens. I've thought about what I would do um, and how what you know how I would protect myself in that situation. It's insane to me that I've ever I've never had to think like that ever. I've been a professional journalist for 11 years now, and I've never once had to think like that, but it's certainly something that's crossed my mind now. Interesting. I also read in uh, one of the articles by your reporters is that police have been subject to this home harassment, police who are, are just trying to keep the peace at these protests. Yes. Early on, um, when the shutdown happened here in Idaho, this was in the probably the spring. I would have to go back and look at the actual date. But um, we had a situation where the playgrounds had been shut down in Meridian, Idaho, as a way to try to stop the spread. And um, a lot of the business closures and things were happening during that time. And a woman showed up with her child and was essentially demanding to be able to let her child play at this playground. And the officer showed up um, and, and informed her that, you know, the playground was closed. She, um, this is all recorded, obviously, this is all a video that you can find on the internet, but she was arrested for trespassing at some point when she refused to listen to the officer that was responding. And some of these groups, um, anti-mask groups and anti, or just, I think they would refer to themselves as the pro-liberty types of groups, um, posted this officer's public uh, publicly his information and his address and people showed up at his house and fellow officers had to come and make sure that he and his family were safe there. So um, it's interesting that the that the folks that tend to uh, be the back the blue crowd are willing to to treat officers of the law this way as well. And um, we're actually working on a story right now about what Idaho law says about um, how you can protest and where you can show up and what constitute as trespassing and what doesn't. I think a lot of the public sees this stuff and doesn't understand that, you know, if you're staying on the sidewalk and you're not entering uh, people's personal property, sometimes there's not a lot that responding officers can do to remove those people from that situation. Mm -hmm. Even if they are causing a ruckus, it's a, it's a definite balance between First Amendment rights and, and being able to protect protect your home and feel safe in it. Talk to me about what you've been dealing with and what your right. reporters have been dealing with. Well, every day, I tell people every day is a, is an interesting time when I sit down to open my email. I take a couple of deep breaths and just know that there will be something in there that is upsetting or um, or somewhat threatening in some way. You know, I have seen an escalation of people writing in and saying, uh, you know, swearing at people, threatening people. I actually called the Boise Police Department last week on a message that we got. 
that was really concerning to me. They had sent it into our statesman Facebook inbox. You know, it's full of profanity. Um, it threatens a reporter if they ever come into Rathdrum, Idaho, which is in North Idaho, I'm going to beat the swear word out of them. He says that, you know, the local hospital or medical facility is absolutely not run over by COVID patients. He says, you're a lying, you're lying pieces of human trash. Um, he calls us worthless. And then he says, and this is the part that made me feel like I needed to report it to police, but he says, journalists are the first on the line when the civil war starts. It's pure intimidation. It's pure um, trying to cause fear in, in the people that are trying to do their jobs and provide this information to the greater public. And I never really experienced anything like this until about four years ago when the uh, President Trump um, started talking about the media in the way he does. And I think, th I think from a journalist perspective, we're always happy to talk about why we make the decisions that we make. Um, we're happy to talk about why we cover what we cover, why we had the headline that we had, why we use the photo that we had. But I think what I'm struggling with is when you get messages like this is, is how do you, you know, if there's not a legitimate question about our coverage, how do I respond to this? You know, it's, it's, um, it's genuinely upsetting because there, you just never know what people are capable of. And right. so I think you have to treat everything as a legitimate threat. Um, we've had the Twin Falls newspaper here in Idaho has been shot at before within the last 10 years, things like that. Those are the things that stick out in my mind. I think about the Annapolis um, newsroom mm -hmm. shooting where um, multiple people died in their newsroom because of a of an unstable person who had been terrorizing um, that newsroom for years. And so when I see things like that, I just, I think about my staff and how much I care about them. And I, I just feel like I have to take it seriously, but there's been this escalation of that kind of language, that kind of response, rather than asking the question of why did you do it this way? It's essentially expletive, expletive, expletive for you doing it that way, you know, and there's, there's not a question. It's not trying to figure out and find common ground again. It's just, it's just telling you that what you're doing is wrong and and you'll pay for it in some way. Yeah, I feel like the unstable people have been weaponized in a way. Uh, and, and that's also, strangely enough, what Gabby Giffords was talking about before she was shot, that, you know, the, the rhetoric has to die down a little bit, and the rhetoric seems to have just gone up. 100%. I think... Um... You know, I think we look at polarization studies um, when it comes to politics in the United States, and it's off the charts. We're experiencing it in ways that we haven't seen in recent history in a long time. And I certainly think, um, you know, we've had other times in our history where things have been worse. You know, I think we look at the Civil War, and I think that we look at the civil unrest um, during Viet Vietnam and see that you know, we were really against each other. We were really on sides in both of those instances. Um, but I think the thing that is different this time around is the weaponization of social media and the ability to be anonymous in some of this, mm. you know, to that, that your name doesn't have to be attached to the threats that you send, that you can create an email with a fake address that doesn't identify you in any way. And you can send it to my inbox and and I get to look at it in the morning and decide if I if it's something that I'm going to forward on to the police or not. It's really a, a sad time in our history. And um, and I think social media and all of the ills that come along with that are really 
really escalate things in my mind as far as how dangerous it can be. And it also speaks to the to this idea that you can really craft your own lens of the world by what you choose to follow and mm. who you interact with in those mediums. So if all you're seeing is one side of things and you're not using um, trusted news sources for um, to get your information and you're relying on the meme that you know your aunt posted um, that may or may not be factual to base your own personal decisions on for the decisions of your family and its health, then of course you don't understand the other side if you're never exposed to it. And so that's right. the, really the thing that I think a lot about and um, I'm really struggling personally with. I, you know, I wonder if I would even have a Facebook if I didn't have to have it to um, do my job. I, you know, I'm at the point where it would be time for me to, to step away from those, those platforms and, and find other ways to communicate with my friends and family that, that, I, that I genuinely want their updates on. You know, it's just like scrolling through this cesspool of misinformation every single day and how much time and energy do you put into it to correct people? Right. And how much are they willing to listen to those corrections? I want to go to. I want to go to uh, this latest uh, screed that you got. The person said, uh, "When the Civil War starts, journalists are going to be on the front lines." I, I feel like we're we're going into a very uncertain time here. Uh, Trump is going to be gone. I know there are a lot of people that say, yeah, hey, Trump is going to be gone. Everything's going to go back to normal. There's a, I have a fear that it's going to get worse. What do you think about this? I worry, um, I worry that more and more people really do feel like this is a legitimate way to view the world. And so if we have people um, that are abandoning truth and fact-checked news stories, and they don't believe them because the president of the United States has said not to, um, where do we go from there? And as a media agency, how can I make sure um, that we're reaching those people and trying to help them see that we have a process for fact-checking our stories and for editing things and for making the decisions that we do? And that's true of every newsroom. And so it's, it's hard when people take to heart one person's opinion on how we go about our jobs. And that person is so influential that it clouds the minds of Americans that really do deserve good solid journalism that we're trying to provide. And so, you know, we've reached out to conservative talk radio to get our healthcare reporter on um, to talk about what's happening with the virus in Idaho. Um, we're actively trying to figure out ways to reach people where they are in those spaces mm -hmm. to give them accurate information and to help them make better decisions for their families and to make sure that our policy makers understand this. I think that's the, sh the most shocking part about this is that many of our policy makers also have a, a severe distrust of the media, don't understand the role that we play and would rather see us all die out, you know, and that's that's a really concerning part is when um, people that hold elective elected office feel this way about what we do. And it's really trying to claw back that trust and, and respect for the media that, that we're really lacking right now. And I'm not saying that, you know, the media makes all the right decisions in these situations, but I do think there are systems in place to make sure that our stories are fair and accurate. And that's the, that's the large majority of the things that news outlets produce. And so to see it, to see all that hard work that we put into making sure that we have 
this information to give to people um, just discarded by certain people. That's what's that's what's hard for me to to see. And I I again I don't know what will right the ship if we're all tuned into our phones 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and and not really doing our part as media uh, consumers mm -hmm. to make sure that what we're reading comes from a reliable source. And I only think that that's going to get worse as time goes on. Christina Lords is the editor-in-chief of the Idaho Statesman. Are you the youngest editor-in-chief ever there? I am, and one of the youngest in in our parent company, McClatchy. So it has been an interesting an interesting ride. I think we have a good group of very dedicated journalists in our room that are um, trying to to do good, solid work for the betterment of our community. And I can always always hang my hat on that at the end of the day, even when my inbox is a you know a dumpster fire. Um, we get a lot of a lot of um, way to goes and thank you for what you do too. So I don't want to uh, make it sound like everybody is, is against us. We do have people that are very grateful for our reporting. And, and when I see those, I actually keep those in a little file and go back and read them. Uh, <laughs> at this point, I go back there every day and just kind of remind myself of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I think the thing that I, that I've been thinking a lot about is in 20 years, when I look back on this time, I know I've been proud of the work that we're producing and I know that that we're helping people make better decisions for themselves and for their families by the information that we're providing. And you can't stop that as much as as people would like to intimidate journalists um, and, uh, and some of these healthcare professionals and public um, officials. I know the greater good will win out because it, it has to. There's no other alternative. I think that we just have to keep our heads down and providing good, solid journalism that people can trust and people will see the light that way. Christina Lords, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, Carrie. I appreciate your time. This week's episode of Impact has come and gone. I'm grateful each week to talk of this, to some of the smartest people in the world. Thanks to Christina Lords from the Idaho Statesman, UMC CEO Mason Van Howling, and of course, Sarah O'Connell for chuffing with me about the news this week. Our intro music is Foster the People's Life on the Nickel, and you're listening right now to Vampire Weekend's Oxford Comma. Next week, we're going to be spending the entire hour talking to teachers about what their lives have been like during this pandemic. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact.